um, a neighboring church's meeting next door. And the, uh, the pain and trauma that they're experiencing this morning, the loss of one of their members, and the way that it happened. And, uh, and so I just think as we go through the service today, they're brothers and sisters. They don't walk exactly the way we do always, but our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. We've paid special attention to inviting them to our uh, events, and so we pray with them during this time as well. Please turn your Bibles, copies of the Scripture, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just, uh, I, I don't know, uh, I think many of you were here over the time we preached from the first part of this uh, chapter about the veiling, woman, the, the veiling and worship. Does anyone remember, that's always a dangerous thing to say in church, does anyone remember the context? What was Corinth like? Uh, what was it, what was the church wrestling with there? Because it, if they were wrestling with it in relation to, for instance, the wearing of the veiling, then they're going to be wrestling with it in relation to sharing of communion, which is what the latter part of this. Anyone remember? Want to talk about it? Yeah, unity. So they're wrestling with unity, and particularly good, particularly as it relates to uh, wealthy and poor coming together. Anyone else? Things you remember. Okay, so remember we talked about how the wealthy were um, a part of the church. The wealthy people wore one thing. So clothing and how the people dressed for church was important. So, so and, and then it, it becomes an issue of unity because people begin to say, well, they're not like me, so why should I, you know, why should I worship with them? And, they're just doing it differently. And, and there's this animosity from the poor and this kind of looking down from the wealthy. And it, it's this kind of breeding ground for division. And, and then, you know, there's, there's other parts of uh, Corinth that we could look at, but we're looking at this portion today. So I'm going to break in. What we'll do is simply is begin at verse 17 and read through the end. But in, in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread 
and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. Now, this passage is often a bit confusing for those of us in the modern world, uh, and, and maybe in, particularly in the American world. I, I want to just to kind of look, we're going to just very briefly look at the middle portion where it talks about the actual act of communion. Because in, in some ways, we often use this, but it's kind of sandwiched in between two pieces. One is where he says, so when you get together, you're not doing very well at getting together. And then at the end, he talks about how this process of self-examination should take place. And I, I found um, this week in studying particularly the last part of this, I found some really uh, new things that I had never thought about in relation to when we practice communion. And I want to share those with you because they're exciting and new. It's also beneficial to me right now that I'm teaching uh, a preaching course, teaching and preaching course, because it forces me to do more of this myself. Um, but, okay, so the first part. Let's just kind of look at the first part. Apparently, like... Uh, sister said there was disunity. There's an issue with unity. The wealthy, the poor. And when they were getting together, people were seeing the Lord's Supper as a means to eat and to get drunk, uh, which is reflective of the fact that they probably didn't use grape juice because that's a little difficult um, to do, be that as it may. So, so he, he's saying, some of you at home don't have enough to eat. And, and it, I, I want you to look at the verse 22. Uh, what? He says, what? Well, let's, let's back up. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. So he's saying that, that those who come hungry should have been fed by you before they came. They should have enough to eat while they're home. So when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, that's not an issue. So, so you, you get somebody in here who has not eaten for several days, and you show them the bread and the cup up here, there will be a challenge for them to only take that one piece and that a little bit of cup. And Paul is not condemning them for their hunger. He's, in fact, but he's, he is, he's, what he's saying is those of you who are wealthy enough to
to take care of the poor, haven't done your job. You've not taken care of the poor. And so when you get together, there's still that division because some of you are hungry and they just they about can't keep their hands off this stuff. Does that make sense when you look at it like that? Because you could never kind of... There, I've, I've thought about it differently, but if you, if you think about the fact that there, uh, there's this wide diversity of people and this disparity... Some are, are very wealthy and some are very poor. And he's simply saying that when you come together, you, you, you actually create humiliation for those who have nothing because you haven't fed them before the Lord's Supper. And in some ways, he's, he's saying, he, he's kind of tacitly condemning the wealthy for not doing their part long before this. And so he's saying the Lord's Supper is different. That's not when you should be feeding the people who are hungry. The Lord's Supper is when you're doing something else. You're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. And when you look at it like that, it suddenly makes sense. The passage makes sense. And he goes on, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So first of all, I want us to think about uh, the fact that there's a diversity of people sitting in this room at different places in life and at different stages in our economic and social strata of Holmes County. And when you condemn people or don't take care of the people in your life that you can take care of, you're actually eating and drinking condemnation upon yourself. So it's kind of like passing the offering bucket. If somebody in this room had absolutely no money for the rest of the month, and they would be sitting in the back and we'd pass the offering basket to the very back and it'd be completely full of cash. You know, just think, uh, maybe I should take a hundred out, feed my family. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, so if you have these kind of people, if, if you pretend to get together and pretend that everything's okay and that... that that, that, particularly to the wealthy people, and that the people within your circle haven't been fed and taken care of. That's not what communion is. Communion is about celebrating something else. So you should have done your job long before this. And, and a particular note is that phrase, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So when we do not feed the people and take care of the physical needs of people within our circle and spectrum, including the homeless people that we we're just talking about this morning, when we don't give where we can to do that, we, uh, we despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. So it is important for us to do these things. However far removed we are from them, it is really important for us to do. Then he goes on and says, so this is the true meaning of, of communion. He says this, he, he quotes Jesus. He said when he, when he took the bread, he said, this is my body, which is for you. I gave my life for you. You should be giving your life for other people. I gave my life for you. See, see the connection? When we, when we give physically to people in need, we are giving a part of ourselves. We're giving a, our body. He goes right in and says, Jesus ultimately gave everything for you and I. That's what causes us to give. We should be the most giving people in the world because of what we've been given, Jesus. He gave everything for us. And we, we've heard this passage a lot more. Let me just say a couple things about communion. Uh, 
it, it tells us in here how often we should have communion. Did you notice it says, For as often as you eat and drink this, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. As often as you do it. Doesn't matter how often we do it, it matters that we do it. So if we do it quarterly, that's okay. If we do it weekly, that's okay. But every time we do it, we're saying something about the, about the, the life of Jesus in our lives. Okay? So every time we do it, and I'm being a little facetious, it does not say how often we should do it. It says every time you do it. The assumption is, according to the early church fathers, it, it, the practices ranged. Many of them initially had it at every service. The farther away you get from Christ and the more established the church comes, doesn't mean it's, that's what we should do. It means that we should make it fit for our world. When is it best for us to do as a body? How often is it good for us to do as a body? I, 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 I thought about this over Christmas. We should sometimes do it, sometime do it at our Christmas service. Because it's a celebration. It begins when Jesus comes to earth, breaks that veil from heaven to earth, and comes. Wouldn't that be a wonderful time to do it? Where we, where we partake of the ultimate gift given to us. But every time we do it, we, we should remember the sacrifice of God. And that's what it's about. It's about remembering. Now, I want us to go on. I want to cover the last portion. It says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Now many, uh, I have always believed that that is referring to if you have known sin in your life and, you, and it, it could be, that could be. But when you look at what the, the, the wording of this and the structure of this, he's actually pointing back the, the words unworthy manner Point us back to the previous portion. Okay? The portion where he's talking about when you come together, some of you eat and drink, um, those you despise the church and humiliate those who have nothing. He's saying that is what the unworthy manner is. So let's look at that. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in a way where you don't, where you discount your fellow believers, where you don't take care of your fellow believers, that's the unworthy manner. Now, we'll, we'll go on and talk about looking at our own lives, because he does that very carefully. But the unworthy manner he's talking about that is not necessarily you coming with something that isn't resolved yet in your life. The unworthy manner is if you come and view communion as a means to put down your fellow believers or not take care of them. Now let's go on. So, so it is that. Verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that, and if, you, uh, if they don't have food, you take care of making so they can eat at home. 
That's the implicit understanding of this. So, it, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And did you notice how many times in this passage it's examine, discern, judge, condemn? Did you notice those words there? So I, I, I looked at each one of those words and tried to tie them together. And uh, maybe at some point we'll put them on a, not today, we'll put them on an overhead. But this is a play on words because the same word is used multiple different ways and different times. So it, it's like, um, it's like uh, uh, let's, let's use a good example, Baptist. Okay, Baptist. Or, yeah, Baptist. If you say a Baptist, it's a certain group of people. If you say an Anabaptist, it's another group of people, right? So, so putting, uh, sticking words together like that changes, but, but it's still all about Baptists, right? Uh, I, that's not a good example. I should find another English example. I'll, I'll just give you the Greek example. So <clears throat> when you read this, the word krino, K-R-I-N-O, or krimo, K-R-I-M-O, is used repeatedly in this passage. That's the root word, krima. What do you think, what word do you think we get from the word uh, krima? Somebody who is judged and found guilty. Criminal. The English word criminal comes from this word. And the word is used one, two, three, four, five, five different times in three different ways in this passage. So I'm sorry we can't read Greek because it would be, it, it's this kind of play on words that Paul does so well at. And so let's just, let's just look at a couple of the, the usages here. And so, so the word, uh, the, the primary word that he's used is diakrina. And that's in, uh, in verse 29. The word discerning is diakrina. In verse 31, the word judged is used as diakrina. So it would, and the word means to scrutinize, to examine. So let me just read it to you. Well, let me give you the other meanings. And then the word crema is used. Crema, criminal. And that, that's a noun where a sentence is, is given. Or an award. It can also be used in a positive way where an award is given. It's, it can be a sentence or award. Something given to you for your actions. And then uh, the word katakrima is used. And that means to condemn. So let me just read it to you as it... In, try, I try to put it in our language. And uh, you follow along. I'm going to begin in... in in verse 28. Let a person test or prove themselves then. Let a person test it and prove themselves then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without scrutinizing themselves eats and drinks a sentence or an award upon themselves. That is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we scrutinized ourselves truly, we would not be called to account. But when we are, when we are called to account by the Lord, 
we are disciplined or chastened or taught so that we may not be found guilty along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together eat to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let's take care of him, so let them eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for your sentence or award. And when I, and again, it's hard for you to kind of follow along with that, but let me just kind of encapsulate it. What Paul is saying here is saying it is the job of the individual believer sitting in this room to scrutinize themselves. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we have it all together. In fact, if anyone who is perfect may now leave. Okay? You may now leave. You're not. But what, what this is a call to is self-scrutinization. Now remember, you are the only person that you can change. You can't change the people in your life. Change circumstances around them, but you are the only per person who you can really change. And the call is for us to, scrut to be uh, emotionally intelligent enough to scrutinize ourselves and say, where am I at on the journey? And when we do that, it matters less about where you're at on the journey that you're actually willing to scrutinize yourself. The, the, the point that Paul is trying to make is those people who aren't willing to look at their own lives, those people who aren't willing to scrutinize their own life with some care and say, I need to grow, and what area do I need to grow in, those are the people who are not worthy to take part in communion. It is people who stop growing that die. Notice he says, you're going to be like some of them that die. So if you stop scrutinizing yourself and examining yourself, you stop growing. And so this is a call to examination, to self-examination, saying, where am I at on the journey? And it, that shouldn't induce guilt. That should induce joy because it points us back to the fact that Jesus lived and died for us so that we can have deliverance from the power of sin. And so when we examine our own life, there is no shame in saying, I'm struggling with this. The shame is to say, no, I'm not struggling. The shame is to say, well, there, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. The shame is to not look at our own lives. Because then you can't change. And Jesus calls all of us to change. That is the delivering, freeing thing of Jesus. He calls us to change and, and helps us to change. Change is a process that takes growing and time. And so when I look at this passage, I think about, as we're ready to partake in, in communion, this is a call to remember. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus. When we take part of the blood, uh, of the, the bread and the cup, we are saying, I remember Jesus' sacrifice for me. And that allows me to then scrutinize my own life, to evaluate it and say, where am I at on the journey? And then, when we do those two things, where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus and are willing to look at our own lives, that's what causes growth in our life. So this is about growing up in Jesus. I have a, I have a mile to go in my own life. So as we partake in communion, we're, say, we're saying, we're actually honoring the fact that we're not there yet. We're not done. We want to keep growing. There's these pockets in my life that need help. And when we, when we do that, we remember that the only way to deliverance is through Jesus. Let's stand together.